as you and I look at Christ in the mirror of his word, as we see him, as we stare at him, as we think about him, as we meditate on who he was and what he did, the Spirit does something amazing. He metamorphosizes us into the same image. Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. I'm Bill Wright, and today Tom continues his current series with part six of The Church According to Jesus. The Statue of Liberty in New York Harbor is massive and imposing. From the foundation of the pedestal to the tip of the torch, she stands a hundred yards high, and her index finger is eight feet long. The statue literally towers over all who visit. Well, in similar fashion, but in infinitely greater ways, Christ towers over all of humanity, morally and spiritually. The standard that he sets seems absolutely unreachable, and it is, apart from him alone. As Tom will examine today, the Father, in His grace, has decided to redeem a people by His Son, for His Son, to His own glory, the Church. And someday, if you're in Christ Jesus, through Him, you will measure up to the stature of Him. Let's open our Bibles now and join Tom Pennington with today's message on The Word Unleashed. The pursuit of Christ-likeness is a lifelong process, not a one-time event. But we're always growing and moving toward that direction. It's not the perfection of our life, but it's the direction of our life. If you can't look back, Christian, if you can't look back and see spiritual progress, spiritual growth, if you are still exactly the same today as you were a year ago, or exactly the same today as you were 10 years ago, then there's something desperately wrong with your spiritual life. And in fact, you may have no spiritual life at all, because where there is real life, there is always growth. Perfection is only possible in heaven. But likeness to Christ is to be our never-ending pursuit here. We will not be fully like Christ until we die or He returns, but we are to pursue that goal. And it is a process of slow, steady growth, taking one step after another until we arrive at the destination. The entire Christian life Get used to this. Get this in your mind. It is a long journey, so you might as well choose to enjoy the ride. I hope this is a, an encouragement to you because we can so easily be distracted by these false teaching, this false teaching. I remember when I was a young college student, I've shared this with you before, new in Christ, I found myself attracted to books that promised instant spiritual maturity. You know, I read some of the deeper life theology by guys like Watchman Nee that argues there's some sort of crisis point you reach and you're suddenly victorious. You're instantly transported to a much higher level of spirituality. Or I'd see a book like Hudson Taylor's Spiritual Secret and I'd, I'd buy it thinking, this must be it. This is what I've missed. They sell a kind of Star Trek sanctification. You know, just beam me up. 
It's an absolute deception and lie. There are no shortcuts. Spiritual growth is just as slow and painful a process as physical growth. It's like a trip that sometimes doesn't seem like you will ever get there. You know, it's like your kids, an hour into a 24-hour drive, are we there yet? That's how we are as Christians, isn't it? Why aren't we there? But just take the next step, and someday you'll arrive at the destination. The Chinese proverb says, a journey of a thousand miles begins with the first step. Just take the next step. Paul has answered the questions, when do we reach the goal? When Christ returns or I die? Who will reach the goal? Every Christian without exception. How do we reach the goal? By the slow process of a journey or physical growth. And that brings us to the final and most important question. What exactly is the goal? What exactly is the goal? Verse 13 goes on to say, until we all arrive at the unity of the faith and at the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. We're on a journey, but what is the destination? When we finally arrive, where are we? Where does the church's journey end? Well, Paul here describes the end of our journey in three ways. There are three objectives we should be seeking to arrive at. The unity of the faith, the unity of the knowledge of the Son of God, and thirdly, to a mature man. While none of those will be in truth, will be true, I should say, in perfection here, this is the goal that should occupy our energies. Notice the first one, we should arrive at unity in doctrine. Unity in doctrine, that is what we believe. Notice he says, until we all arrive at the unity of the faith. The article, the, before the faith, makes it clear he's not talking about your believing or my believing. He's talking about a body of doctrine. That's how that phrase is often used in the New Testament. We are united in this body of doctrine that we believe. We saw that back up in chapter 4, verse 5, didn't we? There is one Lord, one faith, one common set of beliefs that we embrace. As we mature, we all come together to better understand and more impassionately embrace the fundamental doctrines of the Christian faith. True unity, you see, is not based on feeling, it's not based on experience, but on truth. True unity is not about standing and holding hands and swaying back and forth singing kumbaya in some giant stadium. It's built on agreement about what we believe. The fundamental doctrines that distinguish all true Christians, those are the doctrines that we should be united in and willing to fight for. We can have fellowship with other Christians who don't agree with us on some things because we have a common faith, the faith once for all delivered to the saints, as Jude describes it. So we can fellowship with an R.C. Sproul with, without agreeing with his eschatology because we agree on the fundamentals of the faith. How does all that happen? How do we come to be united in doctrine in a church like this? 
Well, when the gifted men that Christ gave his church teach God's people the scripture, then the people of the church become united around one body of truth, one body of Christian doctrine. God's truth is not divided, it's not fragmented, it's one united whole, and so when people are fragmented, it's because they have not yet come to understand the unifying truth of the Scripture. At the Shepherds Conference, there were more than 3,000 pastors there from different denominations, different backgrounds, and yet we were united Why? Because we agreed on the the fundamentals of the Christian faith. We were united in the essential doctrines, and so we could stand side by side and worship our Lord together and fellowship together across the table in spite of those smaller differences. That doesn't mean we're going to agree on what the tenth toe on the beast means, but we'll all be united in the faith. So the first objective in Christ's plan for His church, when everything functions the way it should function, is that there will be a unity in doctrine. We will be united in what we believe on the fundamental Christian doctrines. Instead of, notice verse 14, being like children tossed here and there by every wind of doctrine. There's going to be unity in doctrine. Secondly, there's going to be unity in our devotion to Jesus Christ. Unity in our devotion to Jesus Christ. Not just unity in what we believe, but unity in who we love. Notice that second expression. He says in verse 13, until we all arrive at the unity of the knowledge of the Son of God. The Greek word for knowledge here speaks of more than salvation knowledge. It speaks of a growing intimate relationship, an intimate relationship built on full and accurate knowledge. It's like the relationship that grows in in a good Christian marriage where initially marriage is great. You know, as I tell young couples, the first year of your marriage will be better than any year single. But when you've been married 20 years, you wouldn't go back to year one for anything in the world. That's how it is with our growing in our knowledge of Jesus Christ. The first few moments as a Christian are better than any moment we had ever lived before. But when you've been in Christ and you've grown and you've developed, you wouldn't go back to that first moment for anything in the world. There's a growth in our knowledge at an intimate level. You see, believers, we are united on more than knowing doctrine. We are united on knowing the person of Jesus Christ. This is so essential. It's so easy for people to make Christianity about something other than Jesus Christ. You cannot be a true Christian without knowing essential facts about the Christian faith, but knowing those facts doesn't make you a Christian. You may be utterly informed about the Christian faith and not be a Christian. I had this illustrated for me very early in my Christian life and experience. Not long after I became a Christian, I went off to Christian college, and we went out on Saturday nights, and I I began preaching in a prison. And I still remember the shock of meeting this man there in prison who was, at that point in my life, one of the most knowledgeable men in the Bible I had ever met. And he was in prison for murder. 
That rattled my world. And the reason is because knowledge does not necessarily equate to relationship. You can't have relationship without knowledge, but having knowledge doesn't mean you have a relationship. Christianity is not accepting a collection of dogmas. It's embracing a person. It's about devotion to Jesus Christ. In fact, if you want to test the genuineness of your faith, just ask yourself this question. Am I personally devoted to Jesus Christ? Does He matter more to me than anything else in the world? That's the confession of a true Christian. While we know Christ, we long to know Him more. That's why back in chapter 1, verse 17, Paul prayed that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him. That's why Paul, late in his Christian life in Philippians chapter 3, says after he talks about his salvation, but I want to know Him more that I may know Him We are united in a growing, intimate knowledge and devotion to Jesus Christ. That's what Christ wants to happen in the church. As the church works, as you fill your role and as I fill mine, we become united in doctrine, what we believe, but we also become united in our devotion to Jesus Christ. There's a third goal, a third objective Not only unity in doctrine and unity in devotion to Jesus Christ, but thirdly, unity in likeness to Jesus Christ. We have unity not only in what we believe and in who we love, but in who we resemble, who we look like. Notice what Paul says in verse 13. He says, I want us all, we will all attain to a mature man. Maturity literally means perfect, or or mature, I should say, literally means perfect or complete. In this context, it's, it's about children and growing up. So it has the idea here of being fully mature, the idea of full development, mature adulthood. I want you to grow up to be a mature adult in Christ, is what Paul's saying. Notice the contrast in verse 14 with children. We are to arrive at the destination of being a mature or perfect Christian. Paul says, we all should become this. Listen, God isn't just concerned that I or the other elders become spiritually mature, but that every Christian in this church, if you are one who professes the name of Jesus Christ, God is concerned that you be spiritually mature. The next phrase in verse 13 sets the standard for maturity. When do you know if you've arrived at maturity? You know, we have sort of, we have uh, signs of maturity in our world. You can do certain things uh, when you reach age 13, and, and for example, in the Jewish culture, you become a son of the commandment. You become a, a spiritual adult at that point. In our culture, we have the age 18 when you can do certain things. Age 21, there are these standards of maturity. How do we know as a Christian when we arrive at maturity? What's the standard? God doesn't let us set the standard. 
God doesn't grade on a curve. Here's the standard. Look at the rest of verse 13. To the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. In other words, when you are like Jesus Christ. You know, we talk about that a lot. We use that language. We talk about being like Christ, Christ-likeness. It's very confusing to some people. Let me tell you what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that you will ever share the attributes of deity that Christ has. It doesn't mean that you will ever be like Christ as Christ is God. You will always be human. What it does not mean is that you will become someone else. You know, some people read the, read the verse like in Galatians where it says, you know, I'm crucified with, with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, it's Christ who lives in me. And they teach, that means that it's almost like you, who you are, and your personality sort of dies and you go away, and Jesus actually lives through you in the sense that you kind of cease to exist. That isn't what this means either. It means that you are to be like him in the moral attributes he has that can also be ours as humans. Let me put it differently. It means to measure up to the fullness of the virtue that belongs to Jesus Christ. It means to possess all of the moral qualities that make him the man, the human that he was and is. If you wanted to put more flesh on that, you could look at Galatians 5. I don't turn there, but you remember the fruit of the Spirit. What's the presence of the Spirit produce in our lives? Love and joy and peace and long-suffering and gentleness and kindness. and All of those things, those are qualities that reside perfectly in Jesus Christ. And you and I are to reflect those moral qualities. That's Christ-likeness when we are morally like Jesus Christ when our lives are characterized by the same qualities as his human life was. When we fully embody the qualities that Christ has, we will have arrived at the goal. This is what the Scriptures teach, isn't it? Romans chapter 8, you remember? Romans 8, 29. Those whom God foreknew, he also predestined. He predetermined your destiny. And here's what it would be that you would become conformed to the image of his son. Galatians chapter 4, 19, Paul says, My children, I am in labor until Christ is formed in you. Colossians 1, 28, we proclaim Christ, admonishing every man, teaching every man with all wisdom, so that we may present every man complete in Christ. Philippians 3, 14, I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call in Christ Jesus. And that upward call, that prize, is Christ-likeness. Listen, an essential element of the goal of the church and of every Christian individually is to morally resemble Jesus Christ. Your life and my life looks like his life looked when he lived it out on earth. How in the world does that happen? How can we as sinful human beings, as far from that goal as we are, how do we get there? One step at a time. 
2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18 explains how we become Christ-like. It says this, We all, with unveiled face, are beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord. And as we behold that, we are being transformed. The Greek word is the word we get our word metamorphosis from. We are being metamorphosized into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord the Spirit. In other words, folks, as you and I look at Christ in the mirror of His Word, as we see Him, as we stare at Him, as we think about Him, as we meditate on who He was and what He did, the Spirit does something amazing. He metamorphosizes us into the same image day by day in that slow, painful process that resembles physical growth. Perhaps you've had the opportunity, uh, as I have, to visit the Statue of Liberty in New York Harbor. It is one imposing statue. From the foundation of the pedestal to the tip of the torch, it stands a hundred yards high. Just to put that size in perspective, she is 35 feet across at the waist. Ladies, don't you feel a little better about yourselves? Her index finger is eight feet long. One of her fingernails is 13 inches by 10 inches and weighs three and a half pounds. Her sandal is 25 feet long. That's a size 879. If you stand at the base and look up, she absolutely towers over you. That's exactly how Christ towers over all of us morally and spiritually. The standard that he sets when we look at the pages of the New Testament seems absolutely unreachable, doesn't it? But God in His grace has decided to make us like His Son, and He will. Someday, we all will measure up to the stature, not the statue, the stature of the fullness of Jesus Christ. Those are the objectives. We will be, because of the plan of Christ, united in doctrine, united in devotion to Jesus Christ, and we will be united in this wonderful reality of likeness to Christ. That's the goal of the plan. That's why the church functions the way it functions. This is what Christ intended to happen out of the overflow of the church acting the way he designed it to act. There are a number of people in our congregation who work for the airline industry or who did at one point. And all of us are reminded of the airline industry because we live so close to DFW and we see those huge airliners coming in. When you think about air travel, what do you think is the most important element of a successful journey? What is the one essential component that ensures you arrive where you wanted to go? Some might say, well, a compass. Others might say fuel, you can't get anywhere without fuel. Others would say, well, a pilot, you have to have someone to fly the plane. Those are all essential. But you can have all of those elements and still not have a successful journey. The foundational element of a successful trip is having a destination. 
In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 13, Paul reminds us of the destination of the church. Here's what he intended the church when it works together to do, that we would all arrive at the new world, and the new world would be united in doctrine, united in devotion to Jesus Christ, and united in likeness to Jesus Christ. Embrace the goal. Embrace the destination. And remember that you will not arrive there today or tomorrow or next week or next year. It's a journey. It's like physical growth. You will not arrive there until you die or Christ returns. But here's the good news. If you are truly in Christ, you will arrive. That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed with part six of The Church According to Jesus. Tom will have part seven for you next time, and we'd love it if you join us then. Well, it's our prayer that you'll be enriched by the expository teaching of God's Word here on The Word Unleashed. We'd love to hear your story and how God is enriching you in your walk with Christ through this ministry. Write to us, won't you? Our address is listeners at thewordunleashed.org. Again, that's listeners at thewordunleashed.org. Or you can call us at 1-877-577-WORD. And be sure to connect with us on social at The Word Unleashed. The Word Unleashed is made possible because of the prayers and financial gifts of individuals like you. Please consider partnering with us. You can find out how to do so by visiting thewordunleashed.org. That's thewordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening to The Word Unleashed, exalting God's glory, explaining God's truth.